0: We study billionaires, and this is episode 44 of the Investors Podcast. Broadcasting from Bel Air, Maryland, this is the Investors Podcast. They'll read the books and summarize the lessons. They'll test the waters and tell you when it's cold. They'll give you actionable investing strategies. Your host, Preston Pish and Stig Broederson. Hey, how's everybody doing out there? This is Preston Pish, and I'm your host for The Investor's Podcast. And as usual, I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Brodersen out in Denmark. And uh, this is an episode I've been really waiting to do because uh, ever since October, the oil industry has been acting a little funky. And uh, I I remember Stig and I distinctly talking about this on one of our earliest podcasts where we were uh, talking about the oil industry and how I had read some article about the supply and demand on oil being all out of whack. And so I got a little scared and a little spooked and I sold out of uh, most of my oil positions back in October and into November. And it ended up being a very uh, good choice. I'd like to say it was, it was all skill, but it really wasn't. There's obviously a lot of luck that was involved in my decision to move out of the, a lot of those picks. But um, ever since that point in time, I've wanted to learn more and more about oil, and Stig and I obviously have a lot of uh, contrasting uh, points of view on oil, and we talk about that on our show from time to time. Uh, last week when we had our mastermind group, we were talking about some of our opposing positions. So what we did is we went out and we found the best author on all of Amazon who wrote a book, and the, book, the, the name of the book is Oil 101, and his name is Morgan Downey. His book, Oil 101, explains the nuts and bolts of the oil business from its composition on the molecular level uh, to the analysis of the market players, from refining economics to trading. I mean, it just goes on and on. And I mean, this book is so comprehensive. And the thing that I like about it most, Morgan, is the fact that it's written in simple and plain English for anybody to understand, which is a true accomplishment in any type of economics book. So we are so thrilled to have you on this show.
1: Well, thanks, guys. Um, I'm excited here to uh, to be on also. I'm a big fan.
0: (laughs) Well, so this is going to be a lot of fun. And before we get into the questions, which Stig and I are obviously going to be probably prepping so that they're in our favor so we can win our argument, our ongoing argument between the two of
2: us.
0: (laughs) Uh, But we want to learn a little bit more about you. I mean, this book is so comprehensive. I know know whenever I arrived at my house and I was flipping through it, I was like, this is unbelievable. Like It took this whole understanding of oil to a whole new level. And I I see Stig shaking his head because I know he totally agrees with me. But how did you... Uh, what motivated you to write
1: this big comprehensive book on oil? Um, so it was actually kind of um, interesting. I wrote the book I wish someone else had written. Um, I was kind of in a similar situation to you guys. Um, I, uh, I, you know, originally uh, I started out as an oil trader um, many, many years ago and um, as a commodity trader, primarily oil. I, I read everything I could get my hands on in terms of oil markets, uh, the engineering, uh, the the whole process of uh, exploration, production, whatnot. And there was very, very little that was well-written, first of all. A lot of it was kind of, uh, they were usually highly technical pieces that were written for a pipeline welder in in Alaska, operating in cold environments. So you had very highly specific technical tests, but you had nothing that explained why the hell do oil prices move from $20 to $150 and then back down to Forty dollars, and there was not not only was there nothing out there that kind of explained the underlying fundamentals of the oil industry. You had back in two thousand four, two thousand five, when I kind of started putting uh, this book together. You had a, a huge move in oil prices, and the kind of the common media reaction at the time, and the kind of man on the street reaction, was that it was all speculators, and there were kind of it was a whole bunch of kind of bogeymen. You know, the people were just grasping for straws, and one of the reasons was that. There was nothing out there that kind of explained, you know, here is, here's how the price of oil is set at your local gas station or petrol station here outside the US. And I kind of, it frustrated me when uh, particularly, you know, people would blame speculators or just random events rather than, you know, looking at it from a fundamental basis. We had a supply crisis and no one was actually talking about the supply crisis that we, we had, were in. And there was kind of a, a movement, so there was a whole, a whole movement called the Peak Oil Movement, Um, that kind of started then. And so there was kind of a demand for information and information in a simple, straightforward fashion. And I kind of wrote that book. I wish someone else had written.
0: And I can attest to that. And, you know, having seen it, the thing that I really liked is you started really big picture and it's really well organized where uh, it's not like this scatterbrain of different oil facts and and lists of, assumptions here and there. It is really well organized and thought out the way that you structured the book and huge kudos to you. I know anybody out there who would read your book, they're going to see that immediately, how well structured it is and how it's a, a big top level picture, but then yet it digs down into the finer elements. If you really want to go that deep, it's all there. And that's what I really liked is how it was organized. But uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, going to go ahead and ask the first question here. And before he asked it, I'm just curious, were you talking about when there was an undersupply? You were talking about like the 2006 to 2007 timeframe? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Just yep. 2005, 2006 when, you know, the prior 25 years we had $15 oil to $20 oil for such a long period of time. And then within a year we went from 20 to almost 150. Yeah. And so that that was kind of the, the impetus was that uh, defining moment. Yep.
2: Okay, Steve, so go ahead. Yeah. So, Morgan, there's just this thing that just keeps, uh, puzzling me. And that is that you see that the oil consumption, uh, has just steadily increased. And you show that in your book, you know, it's just basically increased from the very day that it was invented. And, and even since, you know, uh, you wrote this book, it also, uh, keeps on, on steady increasing. Now, at the same time, you hear politicians talk about moving away from fossil fuel and you also, see like massive investing in, um, in renewable energy. So the logic question for me to ask would be 50 years from now, do we as a world, like globally, do we consume more oil than today? Um, I'd
1: be slightly shocked if we will be consuming a similar, a similar amount of oil as today, mainly because there's a supply side issue, but there's, they, so it's, it's not going to be because people are demanding less oil. And oil, as you mentioned, um, the oil industry started in 1859, so it's actually kind of a relatively new industry. You know, your kind of great-grandparents were there at the beginning of this industry. Um, and since 1859, oil demand, so consumption of oil, has only fallen th- uh, three times. And so it's grown every year throughout World War One, World War Two, every year steadily. And the three periods where it fell were... 1973 and it only fell for that one year just that single year of 1973 in other words there was no growth in consumption Uh, then the early 1980s you had 1981 82 83 you had a fall off in consumption and the only ever time oil demand uh, fell was 2009 because you had a spike in prices and uh, you know the credit crisis and all that kind of stuff but just that single year every other year in the 150 five, 156 years of the oil industry, the consumption has gone up. And um, you mentioned renewables and the, the, you know, the kind of the underlying thing about oil is that oil is primarily a transportation fuel. And unfortunately for uh, renewables, but fortunately for the oil industry, uh, there's almost no alternative at the moment. I mean, you do have electric cars and electric aircraft, you know, that that small plane flying around the world, just trying to set a record at the moment, that electric solar powered uh, plane. So you, ha- you do have electric cars, but they are a tiny, tiny fraction of uh, the transportation world. So to put the kind of renewables in transportation in perspective, this year there should be roughly 16 million cars sold in the U.S., just the U.S. alone. You know, obviously, but there's huge numbers internationally in China and in Europe and whatnot, but 16 million in the U.S. The number of electric cars to be sold this year in the U.S. is just around 20,000. So, you know, and obviously Tesla and all these guys get a lot of hype and buzz, which they they rightly should. You know, it's good to have some in- to have innovation. But the scale of renewables in the transportation field is it's not it's not even you know, it's not on the radar. It's just a fancy rich man's kind of toy right now in terms of renewables.
0: So what you're saying is that the, there's a potential for the. For the demand to decrease in a, a long 50-year period but you just don't see that happening in the short uh, I, of time. I, I
1: no i don't see it, see it happening i mean um oil is is a it's an as i mentioned in the book is essential to the modern way of life and you know people say oh well you know modern uh kids these days are, are using you know skype more so you don't have to fly or using um Uh, are chatting online so you don't actually have to physically visit someone or you're ordering something off amazon so you don't actually have to drive to the store but all even with all of that oil demand is still growing pretty strongly and so uh, it's it's one of those things that you know people have to get to and from the office have to get to and from uh, work uh, and school and you know, people have said, oh, well, suburbia is ending. Even if suburbia ends, you know, you've got a, a, a huge amount of things need to be transported around the world every day. And the only fuel that is used to in transport is pretty much oil. No uh, shipping, airlines, uh, trains, cars, trucks, everything uses oil. There's And there's no real competition for that at the moment. And should there be competition? Yeah, I think it would be a great thing if uh, battery technology evolves and we can kind of ramp up solar and uh, wind, uh, you know, renewable energy. But the the big challenge is that the scale of oil consumption is so huge that it's kind of baked into our modern society. And, you know, it's not a, there's no real alternative out there at the moment.
2: So, Morgan, I I think you have a really good point because, you know, when I'm talking about, like, will the old demand increase. Now, one thing is to talk about demand of oil. We might also just talking about general energy consumption. And I think that everybody agrees on that the energy consumption will increase in the world. I don't think you can find anyone that will, that will tell you otherwise. But the debate right now is how this demand should be should be met. Is it with renewables or is it with oil or a third kind of thing? And I think what a lot of people forget is that you can't just replace oil. And I also think that's what you're saying, that... Oil has some properties. For instance, when it comes to distribution and storage, that you can't do with windmills. You can't do yeah. that with solar. It just doesn't work, like technologically.
1: Yeah, yeah. And um, you know, one of the interesting things that people, talk, when people talk about oh, energy, renewable energy, um, oil is just kind of its own bucket. Whereas if you look at electricity, um, almost zero oil is used to produce electricity, just because oil is so expensive and is so energy dense and is so valuable in its use as a f- transport fuel. You can jam a huge amount of energy into a car tank or a an airline's wings or a, a train, whereas um, if you look at electricity, electricity production almost all around the world is roughly coal, natural gas, and nuclear, and then a small amount of hydro and wind and uh, other kind of renewables. So there's the world of electricity, which is kind of one part of the energy world, um, and it's all those kind of you know coal, natural gas, and uh, nuclear, and then you've got the world of oil, and the two are not really they are not fungible, you can't, uh, people are trying to solve, the renewable world is trying to solve the electricity issue, Um, but in terms of there being an alternative to oil, there's nothing really out there at any kind of scale at the moment, Um, and even if you do get a ramp up in solar and and wind and and renewable generation, power generation, that's primarily for use in the electrical grid. If you need power, a a car, you're going to have, battery technology is going to have to improve hugely and dramatically to, uh, you know, to try and offset oil. And one of the interesting things you mentioned was that 50 years from now, there'll still be a demand for transportation. People still will need to get from A to B and get move goods from A to B. Um, But I think the major challenge is going to be on the supply side. And we've only now started, you know, that big shock in 2005 when oil went from 20 to 150, that was not speculators. That was purely because uh, conventional, easy, onshore oil has begun, production has become, has Begun to decline, and there was this whole movement called the peak oil, you know, movement a few years ago. Everyone was kind of saying, "Oh, oil production is going to decline forever," type thing. And we conventional oil production has actually peaked and is declining. That's onshore. We just you drill straight down, um, and it's cheap oil. It's like fifteen to twenty five dollars per barrel, and we've shifted up to. A Newer source because we have run out or Are running out of that easy, cheap onshore oil. We've now had to move up the cost curve. And if you're familiar with economics, you know, this um, you move up to more and more expensive cost curves when you burn through your low cost supplies. And so we've moved up to deep offshore, and offshore oil is a $50 per barrel business. That's where it kind of starts. In, and yet, is there more oil at that price? Yes, it's, but it was much more expensive if you want to. Uh, uh, repair an oil rig you need a wrench 50 miles out into water you kind of have to that wrench becomes a thousand dollar wrench because you've got to helicopter the thing out and back so offshore oil production is very expensive um, and then we've we've kind of offshore oil production has not grown to meet this the continued growth in demand and so we've shifted to an even higher cost supply which is all this fracking and fracking is actually a nat- natural gas uh, technology it was primarily way back it's it's kind of an old technology. It's you know obviously controversial somewhat in the U.S. because people are uh, concerned about what the um, you know uh, oil leach into, into groundwater and, and the chemicals used in flacking, fracking fluids. But um, it's a very uh, it's a very good technology to use for nat gas, and it was developed for the nat gas industry for where you drill down and you turn the pipe the drilling pipe sideways, you drill sideways, and then you later on you frac the rock with uh, water um, but it only really started to take off in 2009 because oil had, had reached the price where this new source of supply, it's a very expensive thing to, to frack for oil. And oil fracking costs 70 to $90, depending on where you, where the fracking is occurring. And so we've moved from conventional onshore, which peaked and began to decline in 2005. Um, and globally, not just in the US and, or other countries globally, we moved to uh, deep offshore, which is, Kind of you know us gulf coast and um, obviously the north sea and all that kind of stuff it's uh, that's around 50 dollar oil and um, but that's not enough supply there so then we were moving higher to fracking supply and fracking is a 70 to 90 dollar per barrel uh, cost in terms of the supply cost and the problem with fracking is that you look out to 2020, 2021, U.S. fracking oil supply is also going to begin to decline. So all this, because there's only so, certain parts of the U.S. that can be fracked for oil. There's North Dakota, West Texas, some parts of, of Pennsylvania and New York. And so it's great that there's an additional, you know, a few million barrels per day produced by the U.S. at the moment. But no, have you noticed that no other country in the world is fracking for oil or not at the scale in, as in the U.S.? And so it's kind of, there's a limited, Um, And it's a very high cost, new source of supply. And so now we're moving on to what's the next high cost source of oil. And what is next? There's two big areas. One is Arctic oil, which is where you drill way up in in the uh, Arctic, in polar regions, where it becomes a much more technically expensive thing because you've got freezing conditions, obviously, and ice flows and all that kind of stuff. but that oil is, anyone's guess, is between 125 and $150 per barrel. But you can produce it. It's there. It's people can see you can see it, you know, you can do seismic analysis. And then we, what you've got is you've got the next highest cost uh, oil is what's called ultra deep offshore oil. And this is in places like Brazil. And, you know, Brazil made a whole bunch of noise, uh, like the Brazilian government, about five or six years ago when they said they had discovered this huge oil field. And it was called the Tupi field back then. And it is a, a, an enormous oil field. And the challenge with this oil is that it's, and Brazil made it said, we're going to save the world. We're going to produce all this oil. The problem with it is, is that it cost $200 per barrel to produce that oil. And by the way, the technology to produce it hasn't been created yet because you're drilling off the continental shelves. So you're drilling way down through the water, wow. you know, miles deep. Then you're drilling into the rock. And so it becomes very expensive. And the first barrel of oil that's meant to be produced from this oil, this should be in the early 2020s. And the run, it's it's roughly around 200 plus dollars per barrel. And so we're moving up along through these different supply curves. And so, uh, you know, everyone kind of, you know, knocked all these kind of peak oilers. And and there was a certain kind of element of uh, survivalism type thing. And, you know, it was almost got wrapped up into this uh, almost evangelical type movement. And so that was kind of what knocked us, I think, sideways. But the big challenge is, is that we're, um, you know, oil is not a renewable resource. We are burning through our supplies at an obviously an ever rapid rate, um, and we're burnt. We've burnt through all the really cheap stuff. Now we're going to much more higher costs. And you know, um, if you price oil, it's pure economics. If you price a barrel of oil high enough, you can get oil out of a lot of different things. You can make oil liquid gasoline out of coal. You can actually you know it's a hydrocarbon. You have to do some, you know, a lot of expensive things to that hydrocarbon to get oil out of coal or to make um, or gasoline out of coal. But at $500 per barrel, all other things being equal, you can actually create, uh, create yeah. gasoline out of uh, any other hydrocarbon. And so you've got a situation where the demand side, demand is gonna to continue to grow because there's no real alternative at the moment. Electric cars are still a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the uh, world. There's no the demand will continue to grow. The biggest challenge is on the supply side, and you know for all those people that kind of knocked all those peak oilers, they were all kind of right. Conventional oil production has has peaked and begun to decline in 2005. That was what caused that big uh, rally in prices. We kind of hit a supply window, and so our supply ceiling, and we had to force the market up to the to pay for the newer, higher price oil, which was uh, you know off deep uh, offshore and then fracking oil. So.
0: So right now, so it's really interesting that you say those things because you're talking about how expensive the the oil could get here in the future. And the question that I've got, so in January of 2015, um, and our show obviously likes to study these different billionaires. So uh, that's where this question's going. So we had yeah. this, this billionaire over in uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, his name is Prince Bintala.
1: Bin, uh, Bin Al-Walid. Prin- Prince Al-Walid Bintala. He's a famous guy I'm, in the finance world.
0: I'm going to go with your pronunciation of that. Um he said that that he will not see or that we will the world will never see another hundred dollar barrel of oil again. And I found this article, it, this was in the USA Today that they wrote this. Uh in fact, we'll put the the link to the article on the show notes so people can see this. But uh it was in, in the USA Today, and I found this to be totally mind blowing uh that somebody could come out with his credentials and his background and and yep. being so intimately familiar with oil over yep. in Saudi Arabia. That he would say something like this so i'm really curious to hear your opinions on why do you think he has this long-term opinion of oil remaining below a hundred dollars
1: um so uh, it's kind of interesting you know it's kind of like um if if you're a, a kid of a rich family everyone thinks that your opinions are are, are much more weightier and deserve <laughs> a, a kind of a a a, a you know, credibility where it's, they may not be, that may not be the case. And so everyone thinks that everyone in Saudi Arabia knows everything about oil. It's kind of like saying everyone in, in Idaho knows everything about potatoes or things like that. Um, you know, he, obviously he's a billionaire and he made a lot of his money, not in oil. He made it in other areas, huh. um, in finance and a whole bunch of other things. But the, uh, the, obviously Saudi Arabia is a very unusual country. Um, it's, it's entirely dependent on oil. There's no other industry there. There's no tourism or, I mean, there's a tiny amount of tourism, but there's no kind of, at scale type industry and Saudi Arabia is obviously the leader of OPEC they're kind of the de facto leader of OPEC and OPEC's their only uh, ambition in the world is to have higher oil prices and so they try and uh, you know reduce supply occasionally to try and prop up prices. So the the challenge I have with with uh, a statement that we'll never see $100 oil again is that okay so where is this additional you know i i, I kind of you know I'm a guy that looks at numbers and so sort of physical supply and demand um where is the so you're going to have demand is continued to increase every year it grows by one to one and a half million barrels per day we're up to the mid 90 million barrels per day of consumption right now um where's all this additional supply going to come from? And, you know, to say that we'll never see a hundred dollar oil, that that means you're basically by default saying we're going to find cheap onshore oil. But where is that cheap onshore oil? I don't know where that is. Um, I mean, there's some cheap onshore oil, but not enough to meet demand growing at one and a half million barrels per day. Um, there's, you're saying that also that fracking is going to go international, that you'll have fracking in Saudi Arabia, in Europe, in Russia. Um, that hasn't happened yet. And there's a whole variety of reasons why fracking is kind of uniquely a U.S. thing at the moment, um, but basically you're, you're you're making an assumption that you're going to see all these sources of supply that are going to come out of uh, come out over the next five to ten years that are going to be under hundred dollars per barrel. Though I don't know where the, where those sources exist. So the, the, on the supply side, he's definitely wrong. There are no huge sources of oil that are are, are coming out online um, under 50 dollars a barrel. There's just not that. Wow. So then he's then maybe he's saying that that demand is going to collapse that oil people are going to become much more efficient and um, and there's a famous uh thing in you know obviously oil grows pretty much with population so it can, it's relatively steadily has uh, grown over the last 155 years and so you know maybe people are saying, you know one of the i'm trying to reverse his logic here or try to go through his logic Maybe saying okay people are just going to become much more efficient with their use of oil and so there's an interesting thing in uh, oil markets where it's kind of a that's uh, something that also occurs in other markets where every time efficiency increases people you burn more of that underlying commodity so if you look at cars in the u.s you know it used to be 15 years ago, cars would get 15 miles per gallon or 10 miles per gallon. We're now up to, you can get a car today, just a regular Ford or whatever, that can get 40 miles per gallon. You know, it it drives and looks like a regular car. It's it's using some hybrid technology, some uh, regenerative braking. Um, The engines are much more efficient. They're smaller engines, but they're turbocharged. So you can actually uh, get more efficiency out that way. So you've got a, a trend where... Uh, miles per gallon of the average car on this road in the US and globally is increasing pretty at a decent rapid rate. But the, the interesting thing is that what do people do when they get a more efficient car? They buy a larger car. And so, <laughs> they, you know, if you look at SUVs around the world, SUV sales are actually quite healthy. And so people, even though the underlying consumption device airlines, uh, you know, use more efficient jet engines, uh, ships use more efficient uh, marine engines, cars use more get more miles per gallon. And um, all the, that they, the average consumer does is they fi- they fly more because airline yeah. tickets become cheaper. Uh, they ship more stuff, uh, buy stuff because Amazon can ship it cheaper. You know, all those things. Everyone thinks that Amazon, the world of the future, and Google buying stuff off the internet involves no oil consumption. It involves the, almost the exact same oil consumption as if you drove to the store because Amazon now have to ship this single box to you. You know, it has to go through a whole network of planes, boats, and and uh, and trucks to get to you all that requires diesel usually for commercial transportation and so there's there is no uh, efficiency um out there that's not being offset by higher consumption um at the moment so i, I just don't i don't think that he can uh what, what are the underlying facts that he's he would say that uh oil can never go above a hundred there's no supplies uh, huge sources of supply coming out under a hundred dollars per barrel and if are people going to become more efficient, engines are becoming more efficient, but people are then using that efficiency to, to consume more oil. So, you know, by shipping more products, by flying more on uh, airlines, by uh, buying larger cars or just turning on the air conditioning in a car, you know, or turning, adding additional devices. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
3: Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, offering next-level comfort and refinement. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So we came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network and the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep with Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show.
0: And and I will say this, in the article, it did not list anything that he said quantifiably why he felt that way. It was just yeah. like, Hey, I feel it's not it's never gonna be higher than a hundred dollars, and that was pretty much like the essence of the article.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and it's kind of it's one of those things that um, I'm a very much a, because I'm come from the tr- trading world, I'm, I'm a very much of look at supply, look at demand. And yeah. it's an adding the numbers up type game and that you can actually uh, oil demand is actually relatively easy to model mathematically because it's, because you, it's the law of huge numbers. You've got, um, you know, six billion people and people can, when you get up to those scale of numbers, people behave very uh, predictably. Yeah. And so you've got. Uh, And when you boil it down to, you know, people drive to and from work every day, to and from school. And at scale, it's very easy to model consumption. And the supply side is kind of the more difficult thing to model for oil markets because you do get these lumpy and also technological shifts. You do like fracking only really took off in in, uh, the U.S. in 2009 but because it required oil to be at $100 to to start that whole to kick off that industry. And so um, the supply side, you've got a lot more dynamic things going on um, and there's also there is a definite progression of technology on the supply side um, but it's much more difficult to predict the supply side than it is the consumption side and so I'm, I just think, I think he's probably saying it obviously for a uh, for a, you know, maybe he thinks that the world's going to become more efficient but History has shown that has not ever been the case with and, oil.
0: And you don't know whatever his political intentions might have been for saying that over in Saudi Arabia. Maybe he's got some other
1: oh, yeah. um, I mean, intention
0: I mean, tied yeah. to that comment yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean,
1: and the thing about the, the Saudis, that I don't want to kind of necessarily pick on the Saudis, but you know, their, their entire economy is 100% dependent on oil. Um, of the 94, 95 million barrels per day of, of uh, supply in the world... And um, just over 10 million of that it comes from Saudi Arabia. Um, and so they, you know, it, it's it's something where uh, politically, obviously, oil is a very strategic commodity just because everything, some you know, jets, uh, military machinery all operate on oil. Um, I would almost argue that um, every war since the since 1900 has been uh, won and lost. And a lot of the strategic uh, decisions were based on oil, you know, Japan going down. To try and get to Indonesian oil, that was their reason to push down and try and knock the U.S. out of uh, the, the, the Germans going into Eastern Europe, you know, uh, uh, to get to the uh, oil fields in Russia. That was, uh, you know, uh, to their detriment. You know, they, they burned, uh, wasted a lot of energy, and, and obviously people going uh, east during that thing to get to oil. So, oil is a very strategic um, thing, and so people are cautious about what they say and, and some, obviously when your only business is oil um, then you're even more kind of cautious and, and kind of an interesting from that perspective.
2: Yeah so Morgan I can't help to uh, to think about this from the perspective of the stock investor. Because it seems to me Yeah and the reason why President's laughing is that I always you know when I have a guest I always say well so if I'm a stock investor dot 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 <laughs> so so that's why he's laughing. So uh, Morgan Looking from the perspective of the stock investor, uh, you know, when, when we think about the oil industry, the typical thing about companies like Chevron, Exxon, Shell, and so on, like these big, vertical integrated companies that might be quite vulnerable to the oil price because they have you know, a given cost structure, as you said, depending on how they explore that oil. And then the revenue is basically the oil price. Now, I'm kind of thinking, I'm not sure I want to be in that industry, but I might want to be in the oil service industry because that is supplying equipment to that industry. Would you agree that that industry is less vulnerable to the fluctuating oil price? Uh, unfortunately, I think
1: it's even more vulnerable. Um, and one of the reasons for that is that if you look at, um, obviously, fracking over the past few years, Schlumberger, Halliburton, they've, uh, they, if you're doing a frack job, as in the, you, Exxon don't do the fracking of the well themselves, they hire... Uh, Baker Hughes, Schlumberger, or Halliburton to do that fracking for them. And um, a lot of those companies have gotten hit in the are hurt. Their stock price, those oil services companies, have got hurt because uh, they've lost a lot of that fracking business when oil moved down to the 40s and 50s over the past uh, few months uh, at the end of last year. Um, and so um, I would almost argue that oil service firms like those Halliburton, Schlumberger, uh, Baker Hughes, they're almost more levered version of exposure to oil prices. Um, and companies like BP and Shell and, and uh, Exxon, they're much more closely tied to the price of oil, you know, to to flat price oil movements. And so I would almost argue the opposite that it's the, the oil majors are much more closely correlated to the price of oil. And it's not, you know, that's not a bad thing. That's almost, that's a, a, a good thing that they're correlated to the price of oil. You know, one of the um, biggest things in the oil market in the past few years has been all these ETFs for oil services funds and uh, ETFs for trying to track the underlying price of oil. And there's a big famous one called USO. Um, and the problem with all the, uh, some of these ETFs is that they use futures contracts, oil futures contracts. And it, it doesn't really work that well, at least in my opinion, and if you look at, look at the performance of those ETFs, it doesn't really work that well when you have an ETF based on oil futures, because oil futures themselves are kind of there's a whole bunch of transaction costs involved with them and whatnot, but um, if you want most, the most pure play for you know to, uh, on the oil industry, it's obviously just one of those majors, the Exxon's, and and they're, they're still they're very well run companies, um, and they are correlated with the price of oil. So you have to be willing to roll with some um, you know, fluctuations and, and oil price correlations. But it, um, I would say that they're almost a less leveraged version. Play in oil than the oil services companies. The oil services companies they get hit when oil prices fall. Everyone uh, starts cutting oil services. To almost you know it's a more exaggerated or more levered version of uh, the oil majors.
0: So I got a question for you, uh, Morgan. Um, I think a lot of people listening to this podcast are very curious to get the inside scoop of what you think has really happened over the last six months. And yeah, I'm just, yeah. Was, yeah. we had a guest on the show and he made the comment that the US, it was, it was payback to Russia. And I think you talk to anybody in the industry, they're all saying that it has, to, and I see you smirking. So you've heard, yeah, this, yeah, yeah. You've heard this story too. <laughs> so I really want to hear your opinion and whether that story holds any truth and just kind of your whole take on it.
1: Okay. So the oil industry has always got all these conspiracies surrounding it. There's, <laughs> you know, the, it uh, was that whole thing in the 1980s where people think that the Soviet Union was, was ultimately collapsed by the U.S. Ronald Reagan telling, you know, the Saudis to pump as much oil as possible, and let's get these, uh, let's crush the Soviet Union. Um, So there's always kind of these kind of uh, underlying conspiracy theories. But at, at the end of the day, it actually is pure, there's just pure economics. There's nothing really, you know, politics does play a certain, is a certain part of the story, but it's purely economics. And so what happened was, up until August of 2014, up until August of last year, for the prior five years, since 2009, um, oil had been at, a, and I'm talking about oil as WTI crude oil, which is the US kind of benchmark. The WTI crude oil had been around uh, $100 a barrel, give or take $10. So, and for five years, that is an incredibly stable oil market for five years. And it, and uh, there was a, a whole bunch of dynamics underneath that they, the, the uh, behind the scenes kind of in the oil market. It, that uh, the stability of oil at $100 enabled the fracking industry to to flourish. It basically said. You know, you can get your oil. Yeah, it costs eighty dollars per barrel or seventy dollars per barrel. But look, oil is hundred dollars, and it's been stable there at hundred dollars for. So it encouraged all this new supply, which the oil, the oil, it's just pure economics. The oil market needed to encourage that high cost oil to come out of the ground, and so you had that kind of creation of that whole new industry, the fracking industry. Um, and so up until August two thousand nine, and then um, what happened in August two thousand nine? You had a few major things happened. One is. You had um, the uh, there was a Libya, uh, was a decent size of oil producer. Um, those guys had uh, uh, had gone through a whole bunch of turmoil with their oil industry, but uh, it, during the months of August, September, October of last year, their oil production doubled within a, a few weeks or a, a few months. And so, and they're not a huge producer, but everything in the oil market kind of moves at the margin. They went from just over a million barrels per day to over two million barrels per day. So that was that. That was kind. Of, that was the kind of a first thing that kicked off everything. Um, then you had because they're um, all trying so to that keep market.
0: kind of oil to fall a little bit. Morgan. So what you're trying, what you're yeah. describing here is that basically one person starts producing more. Everyone wants to basically keep their market share. So then they start producing more, and it gets competitive. Is that what you're? Is that what you're saying? Is uh, it no, almost uh, like- no,
1: no, no. So, so, so no, Actually, that used to be the case many, many years ago. And if you. Of oils in that first chapter of Oil One Hundred and One, but these days everyone produces flat out, including Libya. And usually, it's the reason they wouldn't uh, wouldn't produce flat out is because of uh, a war, and that was a good situation in in uh, Libya. Um, and there are other bun- a whole bunch of other countries where just because of uh, uh, you know, Iran is because of sanctions, they're producing about a million million and a half barrels per day less than they would like to. They would actually like to, but they don't. They can't buy the you know, proper pipes, the pumps. the do the seismic tests that they need to do because they're, they're operating under sanctions. The only country out there that actually deliberately withholds oil from the market is Saudi Arabia. And so they do it under the auspices of OPEC so they can point a finger at someone else. Uh, but it's pretty much Saudi Arabia's the only country. Every other country and every other company in the world produces as much as they can if they can make a dollar out of it. So if they can make it, get out of the ground at 80, sell it for 81 at market, then they'll do that. There's, a, there's simple economics. So in Libya... Oil production went up by over a million barrels per day back in August of last year. And it kind of came out of nowhere. I was surprised, you know, there was a, a lull in the fighting and, and some stability there. And so oil production kind of recovered. But that uh, hadn't been expected. The second thing was that you had um, the uh, uh, dollar started to rally. And oil is kind of a currency. So it's kind of a, you know, it's, um, you know, you, when, you, when I talk to you know fellow oil traders and whatnot, we don't talk about uh, kind of the top line stuff in the oil market. We always look under the hood. And so, oil is a currency, and so the dollar started to strengthen. All these, everything against the dollar, including like the euro, the you know all other currencies, including commodities, started to sell off. So you had a sell off in um, the, the dollar. i sorry, stronger dollar, weaker oil prices. So you had Libya recovering kind of unexpectedly, out of, out of nowhere, you had the dollar starting to strengthen. If you look at a chart of the dollar index, the ticker is DXY, you can kind of see that. It uh, started off in August. Um, and then the third thing, which was kind of one of the more critical things, was that um, there's two big organizations that do oil demand uh, forecasts. One is the uh, EIA and the other one's the IEA. And when they do their big demand forecasts, they use um, IMF and World Bank economic growth uh, forecasts. And so, if you look at starting in all August of last year, um, people started to ratchet down global demand, economic growth for 2016. And so that whole kind of uh, because of mainly a lot of it was due to China, but then it was kind of the class classic all the BRIC countries: Brazil, Russia, India, China. Started people you know had expected them to grow at eight percent. Now they're only going to grow at six percent per year. So they're still growing, but just not as rapidly. And all of those that confluence of Libya. The dollar starting to tick higher and global economic growth forecasts being all being reduced and being reduced by decent big piece big amounts that kind of pushed oil down to say 80 uh 75 uh, from 100 dollars. so it'd been five years stuck at 100 now we're down to 75 and so then opec me met at the at the uh it was in november of last year and uh the mo- one of the most unusual opec meetings ever in that They all met and everyone else always listens to what the saudis say and there's a saudi oil minister uh, his name is al-naimi he's famous in the oil world Um, and he usually everyone hangs on he's like the janet yellen everyone hangs on every single (laughs) word and and how you know his facial expression and all that kind of stuff because saudi arabia is the only country that uh, deliberately tries to manipulate prices you know they withhold oil that they could otherwise produce and so um, usually, oil drops $25 a barrel. You expect OPEC and the Saudis to say, we are going to support, we're going to cut our production by, uh, you know, to, because Libya has increased by a million and demand has, has is, was expected to grow next year by two million barrels per day. Now it's only going to grow by one and a half million. So someone has to take one and a half million barrels per day of supply out of the market to balance it and stop prices falling. So that's kind of the underlying uh, kind of logic of going into that OPEC meeting in November. And Al Naimi said nothing. Yeah, and OPEC said nothing, and it was kind of crickets. You could hear the chirping of the crickets in the in uh, Vienna, where where OPEC is based. And uh, and one of the most interesting things is that the Russian oil minister, uh, sorry, one of the the CEO of one of the Russian oil companies, went to uh, this meeting as well. And Russia is not part of OPEC. They're they're a similar size oil producer as Saudi Arabia and the U.S., but they didn't. They're not part of OPEC. And so, but one of the heads, and supposedly he's Putin's number two guy. Uh, the, the OPEC meeting as just to kind of to listen in and participate. And he came out of one of these meetings and he said "You would expect them to say something supportive of oil prices. As in, we were we're looking to help OPEC cut supply. Instead, what he said was uh, we, Russia, we're not going to cut supply. In fact we can't because we kind of need the money and technically it's difficult during the winter it was it was a nonsense type statement but in that if you're in that position you should never say that publicly never yeah. say we're, we're going to continue to produce and we're not going to support OPEC so basically you had a confluence of um, Libya the dollar strong stronger slowdown in economic growth so still growth but a slowdown in economic growth all in August then in November you had uh, an OPEC meeting that where OPEC itself and none of the ministers Saudis minister, Saudi oil minister said nothing Russia said negative things you know to try you know, almost force the oil market to fall even further and so we drifted down to the low 40s and then you, you started to hear all these kind of uh, things about Saudis who were saying well why aren't you cutting why, what's what's the logic here and uh, basically it kind of came out in a whole series of articles and whatnot over, you know, it's kind of almost like criminology back in the Soviet Union days. People look at Opecology and see, so you kind of read these articles, you look for certain kind of phrases or keywords. And it, it, it basically came out that the Saudis in particular, um, they were looking at the growth of U.S. and Canadian oil production over the past few years. And... Uh, For since 1973, the Saudis have controlled the price of oil, or at least have tried to. They've sometimes lost control of it, but, um, and they do that by withholding production. And the only way you can do that is that you've actually got to be uh, the margin—you've got to be the only guy out there with that s- excess supply—and so what they've tried to do is they basically have, are trying to wipe out the U.S. fracking industry. All these guys that are seventy-five dollars per barrel, eighty dollars per barrel—they're trying to wipe them out and um, make uh, remove them as a source of uh, supply, such that Saudi Arabia is the marginal oil producer. And so they—you know—for does that make sense for them to do that, or economically or whatnot? I, you know, there's a whole debate around that. But basically, they've said. And they've said it much more clearly since November of last year. They basically have said we're going to cut uh we're not going to cut oil production uh in order to support prices. So it was a very that whole confluence of things was very unusual. You know, what happened since then is that demand growth wasn't as bad as as people had expected it to be. So oil prices kind of hit the forties. You had a collapse in US fracking. So, you know, all that new source of supply, US oil uh supply had been growing at Almost two million barrels, an additional two million barrels per day. And to put it in perspective, you know, the world is, is grows, consumption grows around to two, one and a half to two million barrels per day. But the um, uh, you, the growth in U.S. supply stalled completely. It stopped. If you look at the numbers come out every Friday called the Baker Hughes drilling rig numbers. Rig utilization uh, has kind of has been collapsing. So the growth in U.S. supplies uh, stalled. You had... Um, uh, demand was not as bad as it ex- had it been expected to be so this is a demand from last uh, uh all people were expecting a huge drop off in oil demand uh, it's it uh, hasn't been as bad as expected then libya uh, after a little lull where it's there was a stable situation they they actually kept gotten even worse again so now they all that libyan oil that was hitting the market is no longer hitting the market and so we recovered back up to 60 or 55 dollars
0: so i love your comment about oil being like a like a currency, and when when you say that, and we look at the current condition in the world right now with china really their their market, their equity market has fallen apart, um I think you have a lot of people really run into the u s with looking at the at the dollars being one of the strongest currencies of the of all these fiat currencies, which are all just miserably terrible, but um you see a lot of people run in the u s you have the fed talking uh, seriously about potentially raising rates uh, before the start of 2016 and you made the comment that uh, oil typically moves in the opposite direction of the strength of the dollar so I'm real curious do you see yeah. oil prices kind of staying where they're at based on those circumstances and treating it as if, as if it's a currency
1: um, so you've got um, so just looking at, and it, you know, it, it kind of is a currency in that some, in some parts of the world oil is used as a barter people sell, you know, give oil to Uh, uh, to get goods and so it actually is kind of a currency in itself but the one thing uh, unlike a uh, like you mentioned a fiat currency where you can just print uh, um, you know double the currency in circulation you cannot do that with oil it's a limited supply and also there's not that much in storage you know of you know say the world consumes 90 uh, 95 million barrels of oil per day and it's it's a just-in-time real-time operation because Oil companies, like Exxon and BP and Shell, they don't like to sit there with tanks, huge, huge tanks full of oil because that is, costs money to buy that oil and store it. And, to, yeah. and it, doesn't, it doesn't sit well for too long in tanks as it, it degrades um, relatively quickly. And so the, um, uh, basically it's, it, it is a currency. Um, and if the dollar, the dollar has been strengthening a lot over the past six months, a year, and if the dollar does continue to, to strengthen, then oil will likely sell off in dollar terms. So it, it is it, it does um, definitely trade as a currency. Um, and was, I remember back a few years ago, there was this big push to trade oil in euros and trade oil in yen and all this kind of stuff, or trade oil in rubles. Um, are Chinese yuan. And the, 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 the problem with that is that um, no one tells the oil market trade oil in dollars. Like the U.S. government doesn't say, hey, you must trade oil in dollars or, there's no edict. From anyone. The reason oil is traded in dollars is that it's the most liquid currency and in, uh, if markets trying literally yeah yeah, yeah uh, yes and, and people try and find you know efficiency in, in if if it were cheaper trade oil in euros in terms of the bid ass spread every time you have to buy and sell euros it's a tiny fraction at scale more expensive to do that than it is to buy and sell in dollars and so the reason the oil market trades in dollars is because it is the most liquid uh actively traded currency it's not because anyone tells anyone and if you know um it, it's it's uh but it does trade as, um, you know, if you have, if the, all things being equal, it's just classic economics, if the dollar is stronger against the euro and all other currencies, then uh, the, the oil should sell off also in dollar terms. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low,
3: sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member Fenra SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. US only. Learn more at public.com disclosures high dash yield dash account. dot com slash wsb. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify dot com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's Shopify.com slash WSB.
2: All right, back to the show. So um, I have this question because you said before that uh, the world consumption right now was was approximately ninety five um you're just under yeah. 95 million yeah. barrels per day. Yes, 95 uh, million barrels, you know, barrels per, day. Million per day. Yeah, and I just read uh, in a, in a blog post here the other day that I think since 2009, where your book was from, yeah. uh, the U.S. Uh, production has increased by 3.2, and and from that 3.2 two billion of that barrels per day that was from shale oil. Yeah. Now, uh, so that that was actually uh, that was actually something that was really interesting for me, especially when I read your book. Because in your book you present shale oil, and you also introduce the concept energy return of investment. Yeah, so, and so yeah, so yeah, perhaps th- you can first, uh, first um, explain the concept energy return on investment, and then your opinion on, on, on shale oil. Yeah, sure. Um,
1: and so um, the, the the energy return on investment is that uh, to get a, um, a a unit of energy out of uh, out of a usable unit of energy, of energy out of the ground. And um, you have to spend energy to get that. So if you, the, the easiest way to think about it is that if you're um, uh, to drill a well, you've got to power that diesel generator to drill that well. And so um, you've got to burn energy to, to get to the energy to get. And so over time, um, like drilling on dry land is has got a high return, energy return on investment because um, you don't have to helicopter things out. You don't have to build an offshore oil rig. You don't have to build any of these kind of uh, deep underwater pipes. You just can uh, build a simple rig on dry land using very little energy. And yet the return is huge. You get a lot of energy out of the ground from oil. So um, basically, over time, going deep offshore, offshore and then with fracking, the amount of energy required to be spent to get energy out of the ground has been increasing. So the, the energy return on investment has been decreasing. So in other words, it's becoming much more energy intensive to produce, to get usable energy out of the ground. So it kind of sounds like a uh, kind of a uh, strange com- strange co- uh, thing, but it's, it's basically at its core, the cost of supply on energy has been increasing over time and will continue to increase. Um, so that's kind of one concept. It's called energy return investment. Um, but the, the other thing is that on shale oil, and so I, I, I in, in writing the, the book, I kind of uh, slightly regret using the phrase shale because there's I, what I should have actually referred to. The fracking is actually what's called tight oil, uh, uh, the t- tight oil industry, because basically the oil is locked in very tight little pores, and you've got to blast through those pores to, to link them all um, using water pressure. And so it's uh, all this fracking oil is coming from what's called tight oil uh, reserves. Um, a lot of that t- tight oil is in a type of rock called shale. And so that, that's kind of uh, fracking the fracking industry. Separately, there's a type of rock called shale, which is immature oil. And it's, you know, it's, it's uh, basically oil that if you leave it cook for another several million years, it will eventually turn into liquid oil. But it's basically called shale. Um, and so that technology is very expensive That to actually make oil out of that immature rock you have to, just like you can make oil out of any hydrocarbon You've got you've, it takes a huge amount of energy to make oil from shale, but to frack do tight oil fracking, which sometimes involves fracking shale rock, as in you blast through the shale rock and so that's what's the confusing part of, uh, which I probably will have to clarify in the next edition, of uh, fracking tight oil, which can be oil uh, locked in shale rock, and then there's another process of making oil, actually cooking oil out of shale rock, make turning physically transforming a uh, rock called shale into oil. And so there's a kind of a it's one of the things actually uh, the challenges of writing Oil 101 was that, um, kind of nailing down common terminologies because you know I, I, one of the, my pet peeves is when people say gas, and it's it, I, I hate that phrase just gas because in my mind I'm thinking oh you mean natural gas. Or, oh, no, if you mean gasoline, or do you mean aviation gasoline or motor gasoline? And so I usually like to use pick one phrase and use it very precisely. So there's motor gasoline. There's uh, uh, petrol is is kind of a slang for motor gasoline or gas in the U.S. is slang for motor gasoline. But um, it's it's one of the challenges with with writing oil 101 was finding that kind of common terminology of which one of which I probably didn't explain as well as I should have was that fracking and tight oil. Um, as as a distinct process from making oil out of shale, which is where you take a, a rock and kind of cook that rock into uh, by adding hydrogen and whatnot, also make it turn it into a usable product like gasoline or, or jet fuel.
0: Absolutely wow. fascinating! Wow. I'm so impressed. I'm I'm serious. <laughs> I know. Whenever I saw your book, I was like, "This guy knows what he's talking about." <laughs> and as everyone in our audience can tell, uh, this is incredible.
2: Yeah, and I almost <laughs> think that I'm unfair to you, Morgan, because, you know, I pick, and it got to be you know, completely honest, three lines from page 27 in your book, and <laughs> then you can just, you know, keep on talking about how <laughs> you can refine it. I, you, I'm just completely floored about the knowledge you have about your well, own material. Is yeah.
1: well, well, actually, it was kind of an interesting thing in that the uh, researching, because I, I knew a lot
2: about the oil industry
1: originally. I had done a lot of background reading and I had, had exposure. I know a lot of people and I actually worked in the oil industry, so there was that. But the actual writing of Oil 101, I think the end book was something like 380 pages. And I don't consider myself to be a natural writer. And so I, I had a whole bunch of people help me with editing and all this kind of stuff. But the, uh, the original version, I remember I printed it out one day and it was something like 1,800 pages. And I kind of looked at it on my desk went, hmm. And it took me about three years to edit it down. And a lot of that was due for readability, and so I would hand yeah. it to I would hand it to someone who had no idea about anything about the oil industry, so I would hand it to my mother and say, "Here, read this, and tell me is it entertaining first because and so I try to put in um, what do I call them like knowledge bombs, like put in little things in every page that people would go, "Ah, I didn't realize that," and make them kind of like interesting such so that because there's nothing worse than reading kind of an engineering text of." Okay, it's the, here's a chemical process. you got to say something interesting about, you know, one of the uh, kind of little things like, uh, you know, why is the acronym for oil in the oil market is BBL, but there's only one B in barrel. Where does the other B come from? And so it goes back to the standard oil and John, and John D. Rockefeller's blue barrel. They're the original barrels that were standardized in the oil industry were 42 gallons per barrel were blue barrels. And that's why everyone in the oil market today calls a barrel acronym BBL. And it comes from that
0: little things. So I've got a question for you. Um, and I, I was watching Stig. He was uh, placing a trade while we were talking there. I can see he's buying more oil, oil companies right now. <laughs> um, the, the question I got goes to, uh, there's a lot of these TV commentators on, um, on TV talking about the price of oil. And I think the most prominent one that everyone knows is Boone Pickens, billionaire yeah. Boone Pickens. He's from Texas. He's on TV all the time. And I'm real curious because I know recently he's been saying that oil is going to be, within a year, oil will be like $80. He's making these predictions and stuff, which Stig and I usually shy away from any kind of predictions. But uh, I'm real curious uh, for you, Morgan. I mean, you're so intimately familiar with this stuff. Who's the person that you really pay attention to? I know for like investing, we're, we watch the Fed like a hawk. They have a huge influence on the... On the impact of where the markets move and things like that, but who's one of those key people that you follow for the oil industry that people could maybe latch on to? If if this person says something, it's usually a pretty valuable piece of information.
1: Well, there's there's obviously I listen to myself first.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I would imagine so. <laughs>
1: um, but, uh, so, uh, but I do that. But um. Gosh, it's one of those interesting. I, and I know uh, uh, Boone Pickens. He's a obviously famous guy. I always when I when I hear of Boone, I always remember that guy in the Simpsons. You know, the cowboy in the Simpsons. <laughs> and, I, and I actually think that it's based on him because Boone Pickens was a big uh, uh, buyout guy in the before he was an uh, you know famous as he is right now for a hedge fund. He was in famous in the nineteen eighties. Maybe but it I, is him. It, no, I think it is. He he actually he. Um, it's interesting. I, I could have actually written it into Oil One Hundred One, but the. Um, one of the, the the seven sisters they were called. they were these big uh, bunch of companies that controlled oil from the 1930s to uh, up until OPEC in uh, 1970. And um, one of those uh, big companies was called Gulf Petroleum. And if you look at it, it, was and if you look right now, there's a few in the northeast of the US petrol gas stations or gasoline stations that sell uh, Gulf Petroleum. But T Boone Pickens was the guy that actually did. A buyout of Gulf Petroleum. So he's actually a famous guy. He, you know, in the oil industry for not just his statements, but for just the history of the uh, industry. Um, do I listen to him in terms of uh, oil price predictions? Um, I think he's a very colourful character, um, <laughs> and he, and you know, a lot of what people say on, on TV and whatnot is usually a very extreme thing to try and get a reaction or get a, a, a buzz. It's kind of almost like writing a headline. You need to say something sensational. Um, so who do I listen to? Obviously, anything that comes out of um, Al-Naimi, who's a Saudi oil minister, that is like you you kind of you have to listen to uh, where, where is he going? So is he in China? Is he in Russia? Is, who's he meeting in China? Um, what has he said in China? So Saudi oil minister Al-Naimi is one of the critical people that uh, anytime he says anything or just where he is. Is
0: he on Twitter? i say that jokingly but somewhat serious
1: no actually you know i I don't i don't think so um (laughs) maybe someone should create a twitter account for him a fake al naimi yeah Uh, so let's get on it right
0: now that's not a bad idea i know i'd follow it
1: (laughs) oh yeah Uh, um and so um he's obviously a critical guy in terms of kind of um analysts and and people kind of in the uh, published research and whatnot um, there's there's a uh, kind of a whole ecosystem of these individuals. And, um, you know, gosh, one of the um, and usually the, the, the kind of the interesting thing is that a lot of these people are kind of have a bias. So Al-Naimi is obviously a Saudi oil minister. He's got a bias toward higher prices all the time. So you have to read, th- look with that lens, look at what he says with that lens of, oh, of course, this guy wants higher prices. So, you know, bear that in mind when he says anything. So a lot of if you look at um some people that work at, a, that do research at banks, a lot of, there's good research produced by Citibank. I mean, it's kind of a you know, lame thing to say, and a kind of, you know, banks kind of, a, um, but it's they, they produce some really good research. They've got a good, really good research team there. Um, do guys- you
0: have any like online resources that we could put into our show notes or like a link that you could provide I, to us yeah, for
1: that? I, I can indeed, yeah. Uh, okay, yeah,
0: so, yeah. that'll be great. So if, if you're listening to this and you want to uh, see what uh, Morgan provides, Stig and I, We'll have that in the show notes, and you can go to that and and click on those links, and then you can use those from now into perpetuity as you uh, continue to research your uh, oil.
1: And number one will be the fake (laughs) Al-Naimi.
0: Exactly, exactly.
2: (laughs) Okay, so uh, Morgan, the final question that we have, uh, that's about books. So do you have any books that have dramatically shaped your life, a book that has really had an impact on you, uh, and why? Has the book had an impact on you? Hmm. Hey, interesting. Um, one of the books that kind of got
1: me interested in financial markets um, was *Liar's Poker*. Michael Lewis. Yeah. Great book. Great book. Well written. Very entertaining. He's a great writer. I love everything he writes. But he, we're big fans of Michael Lewis. Yeah, and um, I like the way the way he, the, the, uh, the way he kind of uses. He makes everything very accessible, like things like *Moneyball* and those other books. Are also I like his kind of approach to looking at a. A, a, an issue or a, a story, but looking at it from an, a different angle. But it, that was his first book, I believe. It was his first book called uh, "Liar's Poker," written about the trading floor at Salomon Brothers uh, back in the day. And that kind of got me. That was the book that inspired me to get, or one of the books that inspired me to get into financial markets. It made something. It just made it a it turned made it alive. Turned that whole kind of space into made it very interesting and, and compelling. Um, and obviously parts of it, I'm sure were exaggerated and whatnot, but it, it just, you know, that book was a, uh, one of the formative things that made me kind of want to get into the world of, of uh, finance.
0: Yeah. We're, yeah, we're huge fans of his. And I, yeah, you're right. That was his first book. That's what gave him his big name. And we, uh, Stig and I did an episode where we talked about his most recent book, the uh, high frequency trading book that he uh, recently did. So
1: oh, yeah, the, uh, yeah, the, uh, flash boys. Yeah, flash that's great. Boys. That's a great, yeah. that's a great book also. Yeah. I mean, he's he just, he writes well, he writes very entertainingly. Um, and, um, you know, again, he, he's, he's kind of an interesting author, in and I also think he's kind of a little got a bit of a bias.
0: Oh, he, yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: He, he kind of has this love hate relationship with Wall Street. Yeah. That he, he kind of hates Wall Street, but he loves to write about Wall Street. So, <laughs> um, and, and, you know, but he, he writes really well. And, and yeah, but he, he, that Flash Boys is also a great book.
0: Well, fantastic. So, Ah, uh, for our audience. So Morgan Downey is his name. He wrote the book Oil One Hundred One. Uh, you should have no problems finding it on Amazon. If you go on the Amazon, just type in Oil One Hundred One. It'll be the first thing that pops up. We highly recommend that if you're interested in the oil industry, this is the go-to book. This is better than any book out there that I have ever seen on oil. So, and it's it's by a landslide. It's not even a comparison. So. Uh, Morgan, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your time and your expertise. I know our audience is going to take away a whole lot from this interview. So thank
1: you so much. Thanks, guys. And um, if you need to follow me on Twitter, um, there's, I haven't created the fake Al Naimi yet, but you can follow me at CommodityMD. Awesome. Okay.
0: I didn't realize that you were on Twitter. So CommodityMD, no need to uh, really follow anybody else. The guy to follow is Morgan. I promise you, you will not be disappointed. <laughs> Um, I know I will definitely uh, add you uh, shortly after we're done with great.
1: this. Thanks, guys. Mm-hmm.
0: All right. So this is the point in the show where we take a question from our audience. And this question comes from Dan Taggart.
3: Hi, President and My name is Dan and I'm from Minneapolis, Minnesota. I want to first uh, say thanks for a great show. You guys are a wonderful resource um, and they have had a lot of uh, fun listening and learning from your podcast every week. Uh, my question is regarding inverse ETFs. A while back at the end of one of your episodes, you had discussed various uh, financial instruments that an investor might want to think about holding during times of low return and overvaluation. Uh, I'm generally a long-only investor, but I am wondering what your thoughts are regarding inverse ETFs. Are these good investment vehicles to keep your money in as a hedge against an overheated market? Thanks.
0: All right, Dan, so uh, this is a fantastic question. I think it really applies to the current market conditions here in the middle of uh, 2015 and the summer of 2015. Uh, because the market is, you know, very high. A lot of people would say that it's extremely overpriced. Um, I mean, and there's some people that might not agree with that, but I think that the general consensus is that a lot of people think that the market's overvalued. And I think whenever you look at uh, you know, a distribution, you're seeing it uh, two standard deviations away from where it normally is at. So with those conditions, what you're asking is short selling the market, but doing it through an ETF or doing it through an index. Um, I want to talk real briefly about if you're the type of person that wants to do a short sell, I think there's a lot of risk in short selling. Okay? And I think there's particularly a lot of risk in, in short selling an individual stock pick. Number one, the reason why I feel that way is because of buyouts. So let's say that, uh, you know, and right now in 2015, the perfect company that I would say is just doomed for failure that is going to go into bankruptcy is Sears. Uh, Whenever I look at their income statement, their balance sheet, it is just disgusting. It is really, really bad. So if I was ever going to short sell a company, that would be something that maybe I'd be interested in short selling because it's just, it looks so bad. It looks like it's destined for bankruptcy. But here's the concern is let's say that there's another business that comes along that has a much larger market cap and has a lot of resources on their balance sheet in order to buy out Sears. Um, If I have that short position and I think that it's going to go down because it looks so bad, I'm going to get taken to the cleaners as this new company comes along and there's talk on the the street and in the newspaper of them being bought out. You're going to see the market price surge. I'm going to get called. I'm probably going to lose a lot of money. That's not anything that I feel like I can predict or control. And that is very bad. Uh, so that's why I have never short sold an individual stock in my entire life. And I don't ever intend on doing it is primarily because of that specific risk. Um, the other risk that I just gently discussed was that you would get called. So you'd have to buy this stock on margin, which is a, a loan or borrowed money. And if it moves against you and you get called, you have to come up with the resources in order to meet that, that call. Um, I don't ever want to be in that position. That sounds like a very stressful position. So that's me. Other people were comfortable with being in that position. But what you're talking about is not short selling an individual stock pick and having to worry about a call. Um, What you're talking about is investing into an ETF, which moves in the exact opposite direction of the market. So if the market goes up 1%, let's just say the S&P 500. Let's say the S&P 500 goes up 1%. You're short. ETF or bear ETF, which they're commonly commonly referred to, would would move in the exact opposite direction by the same magnitude. I'm not necessarily saying that that a short ETF is really all that bad of a, a thing to be in right now based on these current market conditions. And I think a lot of value investors out there might really kind of say, Preston, what in the world are you talking about? Uh, you sound like a crazy person right now, but I mean that's that's really where I see this because I feel like the market has been so heavily manipulated by the Fed. Um, I'm really curious. I want to stop talking because I I think I've probably made a bunch of value investors very mad. They're probably throwing things at their uh, <laughs> they're probably throwing things at their radio or their phone or smartphone or whatever right now. But I want to hear what Stig has to say about uh, short selling or primarily about an ETF, a short ETF.
2: Yeah. So. Dan, I think I'm in the same boat as you. Um, like, I'm, like you, I'm primarily uh, a buy and hold kind of guy. And I just, just think for me, um, I don't know if it's only because I don't like the stress. I definitely don't like to be stressed. Uh, or it's also because uh, I don't just feel comfortable about it. Because I, I don't think I would buy into um, shorting an ETF or an inverse uh, s and 500 index. And that is not me saying this is a bad idea. I just think that this is not the approach I have to uh, my portfolio. So a lot of people would be asking me, so if you think that the market is high, why don't you sell all your stocks? I would never say to people they should just sell off all your, their stocks. Um, I will not sell to, say to people either that they should you know, go short the S&P 500. Um, you know, it really depends on what they're comfortable with. What I'm comfortable with is to buy companies when I think they're cheap and then just hold them for a long time, not necessarily sell them if they're high priced, because sometimes stock might get high priced. Now, if, if Preston is comfortable with that or if you're comfortable with that or any other, you know, I think that's probably right for you. And yes, my opinion right now is that the market is overvalued. I am just not comfortable enough to, to make the investment also because it would be it is, in my opinion, some sort of a short run bet, and, and, and that's, that's just not my approach. It's not a bad approach, just not my approach.
0: I And here's what's crazy, is I agree with everything that Stig just said. Um, I do. I, I completely agree with what you just said, and I think that if you're a conservative investor and you're trying to ultimately protect your principle, I think that that's how you got to look at it. And you got to also look at the fundamental nature of the market. No matter how you shake it, is that you are buying a business? I don't care what anybody says. You are buying a business when you buy a share of stock. Um, so let me, uh, I guess, try to defend, which I probably will have a very hard time doing, uh, <laughs> my earlier comment. Uh, so I guess I look at the market right now, and you look at the Dow Jones, and it's at eighteen thousand. Okay, and so if you're buying into an S and P five hundred short. Uh, how high do you really realistically think that the market can go? Uh, and if we're basing that off of the the, the history of the last hundred years, which that's no judgment of what's actually going to happen in the future, but let's just say that you were going to do that. Um, I guess you'd have to use the valuations in the year 2000 as basically the highest that it, could, that it could go, which was what a PE of like 75 or somewhere around in that range, somewhere very high. So, if that's truly the case, then then the market could go a whole lot higher. So uh, you know, maybe it could go up over twenty thousand. Maybe it could go up to twenty two thousand, something like that. I don't know. I have no idea where it's how high it's going to go, or how or when the the potential crash could occur. If it'll even be a crash, or it'll be like this slow, you know, slope down. I don't know. I I have no idea if that's going to happen. But I guess if I'm going to try to defend this idea of a short position, um. I think that it'd be hard for the market to go much higher than 20,000 or 22,000. And if that's the case, um, the market, if it moved up that high, if it, if it moved to 20,000, that's 10% higher than where it's at right now. And I think when a lot of people hear 20,000, they think that's really high. That's significantly higher than where we're at, especially because we've had a severe resistance level here at around 18,300 on the Dow. So... Um, if you're looking at it from a short position and you think maybe the market could contract thirty or forty percent and you think that maybe the the top level of the market would be around twenty thousand, that means that your downside would be ten percent in a short position and your upside could potentially be forty percent or fifty percent, which is a lopsided downside versus upside uh, position to be in. That's probably why I maybe see it as being something that somebody could do if you were comfortable with that. and I guess. I could understand your mindset a little bit, but I am not promoting that position to anybody um, to do that. But I guess I can say I could understand why you would do that. So uh, that's as gently as I can try to back up my position. As a strong, hardcore value investor, I'd really uh, totally agree with everything Warren Buffett. and Warren Buffett would probably smack me in the face for saying something like that. But I just want to put it out there. I mean, I guess I want to voice my own opinions uh, in addition to what all these other billionaires that are proven successes are doing. But that's all we got, guys. So... Uh, That was a really fun question to answer. And we wanted to play that one because that's a really hard one. And it's something that I know I've been personally thinking a lot about. And I'm really happy to hear Stig's opinion. So Dan, thank you so much for submitting your question. We're going to send you a free signed copy of the Warren Buffett accounting book. And in that book, you'll see Warren Buffett does not recommend that approach. Um, But hey, it was really fun answering your question. And thank you so much for submitting it. If somebody else out there wants to get your question played on the show, go to asktheinvestors.com. You can record your question there. Uh, We really appreciate these questions that everyone submits us. It's so much fun to respond to this and just get all the different email questions that we get and being able to correspond with our audience. Uh, We also want to definitely thank Morgan for coming on the show. I think you guys saw how knowledgeable he is about oil. It was just totally fascinating to have this interview with Morgan. So thank you so much. Uh, And that's all we have for you guys this week. So we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to The Investor's Podcast. Pia de